So this week we'll be looking at, at uh, Daniel chapter 7, but, but uh, Andrew, last semester, they have block scheduling at Mannheim Central, so last semester he had his ninth grade English class, and he read several books. He read To Kill a Mockingbird, The Book Thief, A Separate Piece, Lord of the Flies, and Romeo and Juliet. They also did a unit on poetry, and they read some short nonfiction pieces as part of their classwork. So, To Kill a Mockingbird is a novel, The Romeo and Juliet is a play, and the approach to reading and understanding these two pieces of work is very different because they're different genres, not to mention the fact that the English for one is very different from the English for the other. But, but Andrew and his classmates learned how to look at these different pieces of literature and how to study and analyze them and how to enjoy them for what they are. So Daniel 7 puts us in that same kind of boat where we are completely changing genres. It goes from historical narrative for chapters 1 through 6 and now we're into, into prophecy for, for the rest of the book, chapters 7 through 12. And this can be overwhelming to think about, particularly because understanding prophecy can be a scary thing to think about. But just like Andrew had to learn how to read Shakespeare, we can learn how to read about the end times and about prophecy. And just like Andrew had to read Shakespeare differently than the Lord of the Flies, we have to look at prophecy differently than we do historical narrative. So uh, uh, the reason it took so long to get to um, the end of verse 1, we're going to start with just a little bit of a, an introduction um, Dr. Robert Stein, he was a professor of, of biblical hermeneutics, that's really just interpretation, fancy word, uh, at Southern Seminary when, when Ray was a student. He wrote a book, this book called A Basic Guide to Interpreting the Bible, Playing by the Rules. Very an excellent book, um, very down-to-earth read about how to interpret scripture. I actually have read it, um, just really good, very... Um, at, at a level where you don't have to be in seminary to understand what he's talking about. So if, you're, if that interests you at all, this, is, this would be the book I recommend. But I'm, I'm going to give you some of these general concepts that, that he teaches in his book um, before we actually dig into prophecy. And, and so, so, so bear with me, but this is, this is kind of important as we go. So... So first, none of us are actually fluent in Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. So we have to find a good and trusted English translation. Now, I've had numerous discussions with people who are dead set on this is the only version and this is, and each time the version is different, just to let you know. Um, so we could spend an entire, we could spend an entire semester on just Bible translations if we wanted to. And I'm happy to answer questions later, um, but I'm going to say knowing, that you're, uh, knowing about the translation you're using is very important. Knowing when it was translated or updated, knowing the method that was used, the theology of the translators, all those things are important. All of them can normally be found in like, you're gonna have in your Bible an introduction to, to the particular translation that you're using. Um, so, so knowing those things helps you to know 
what it is that, that you're reading. You want a translation that's based on the most reliable transcripts or manuscripts. You're, you want one that's based on the knowledge of the culture, good knowledge of the historical culture of the time. But you also want one that's readable, and, and I'm going to go there. You want one that's contemporary so you can understand what it's actually saying. So my recommendation is to make sure you have a translation that's somewhere between a word-for-word, -word, which is literal, like um, each word is translated just like each word is. You want somewhere between there and what's considered thought-for-thought, thought, which is here, let's read this idea, and we want to translate this idea because that's going to be a little more readable, a little more understandable, um, but you still have that accuracy. The translation in your handouts is the English Standard Version. That's one that I highly recommend. Um, I also really like the Christian Standard Bible for study if you're wanting something different. Um, those are both very readable, yet very accurate in terms of the, of the original language and the, um, again, the theology of the translators lines up with what our, our church would, um, would go with. It doesn't mean that those are the only translations you should ever use. Um, I, we have a whole bunch of different translations at home. We just know the New Living is, is much more thought for thought than word for word. And so the, the, if I'm going for accuracy of the words, New Living isn't what I want. But if I want something that's very down to earth, very practical, very readable, New Living is what I want. You just have to be aware of, of what it is that you're doing. So the key is whatever translation you're using is know the strengths of it, but also know the shortfalls of that translation. What was the second one? Is it the Christian Theology Bible? Christian Standard. It's, um, it's the one produced by uh, Lifeway. For, um, so it's the, the Southern Baptist version. Um, yeah. So, so first thing is know your translation. The second thing, it's a very subtle yet critical concept, and that's meaning versus application. Um, there is only one meaning of a passage, and Dr. Stein would say that's the meaning that the author intended. Um, so this is, you know, for example, you think about the Constitution today, right? A lot has happened in 200 years. A lot has changed about what, what we do in, in just in how we live our lives in just 200 years, judges are trying to figure out what the founding fathers intended when they wrote these laws more than 200 years ago. Today's issues didn't exist at the time, so the meaning of the author must be used to determine the application for today. So this is, this is um, the, the application of that meaning can vary. This is about how we respond to the passage. This is how two people can read the same, the same passage of scripture, but respond to it differently. This is why we can have different themes for our chapters. We still know that the author is intending, that, that Daniel is intending for us to be encouraged 
by what he writes and for us to see that God is sovereign. But in, within those chapters, we can see different ways that we can actually make that apply to our life. Very, very simplified example. Um, eating ketchup with french fries. The inventor intended ketchup as a sauce to accompany whatever it is, right? Some people, you can, you can sit at, at our dining room table with us when we eat french fries. Some people put the ketchup on top of the french fries and use a fork to eat. Some people put the ketchup on top of their french fries and still use their fingers. We're trying to get them marryable. We'll, we'll get there. Give us time. But others will put just a pile of ketchup on the plate, pick up the french fry, and dip. Right? They're both using the ketchup as the inventor intended to add flavor to the french fries but they're just applying that ketchup in different ways. That's, that's what this means. There's a lot more to it, but, um, but that's, that's really just the very, very simplified, basic remembering um, that there is only one true meaning of each passage. The third thing is that context is key. Scripture does not contradict itself, and so we have to use the whole Bible to interpret the rest of the Bible. This is part of why when I hand out those, those post-it notes at the beginning of our sessions, that we have verses from throughout the Bible. It's not just Daniel that we're reading. If you think back to Ruth in the fall, we had to do some looking outside of the book of Ruth to know what a Goel was, the kinsman redeemer and what their role actually was. And that's one way that we used scripture to interpret scripture. Um, so, so you wanna look at the surrounding verses, you wanna look at the chapters that are surrounding it. Um, a slightly more challenging aspect of this is the historical context. Sometimes this is harder than others, but you don't have to know all of the culture, but think back to the nativity story, you think about you think about Mary and Joseph, and the betrothal is different than what it is for today. What we think about as an engagement today, they're not equal to each other. And so we have to remember culturally why th that that was different, and that's why it affected things in, in this way. You don't have to know the details, but remembering that helps to clarify the nativity story. That's, that's what the cultural context would, would help you to understand. But this context would also include looking at, at the author and his background to understand why certain things are emphasized. We think about First and Second Peter and the way certain things are emphasized because of Peter being the one to write it. He refers to, to a stone several times in, in First Peter but that's because that's what his name means. He knows, he knows rock. He's gonna write it in reference to rock. You know, knowing the author helps us to know the author's purpose and intention in writing something and help us, helps us to determine what the author actually meant 
to, to communicate, what he actually intended to communicate. It's not always possible, but we want to do that to the best of our ability. So there's a lot more to it than this. But these are kind of the basics for all scripture. But then when we look specifically at prophecy, things change just a little bit. So prophecies are filled with uh, figurative language. A lot of times these are visions by humans that are they're trying to put things into human language. When we get to it shortly, we'll see that the fourth beast in Daniel 7 is just known as the dreadful and terrifying beast. It's not similar to any other animal like the first three are. Daniel sees something that he has never seen before, but he has no way to describe it easily. That's what he's trying to do. So you can't take prophecy literally the way that you can other, other passages of scripture, other types of scripture. Um, you know, one thing, and, and again, I'll probably make some of you mad, but Think about heaven, right? Heaven, and they, in uh, Revelation 21, it, it's the streets paved with gold, right? Gold is an extremely soft metal. Gold would make horrible streets. Just from an engineer, I'm telling you, gold would make a terrible, terrible street. You know, I had my wedding ring one time and it fell off and it, it landed in such a way that I just happened to step on it and bent it flat. Like, it was crazy, right? But then it was able to be fixed back and now it's round again and, and it's just fine because gold is so soft, right? But gold is a very precious metal. And so the point of the statement in Revelation 21 isn't that the streets are literally paved with gold, but it's that we remember that gold is a very precious metal. It's the idea that those things that are so precious and so important to us here are so plentiful in heaven that it's like the rocks that are on our streets. That's the point. That's the idea that we need to, to recognize. And so that's why we can't always take it, take it literally. Um, Dr. Stein actually compares a, a photograph, would be the literal meaning, to, to being prophecy, being uh, an impressionistic uh, art piece of art. You know, we can't, um, but, but just because we can't perfectly visualize it does not make it any less real. Um, the second thing is this concept of dual fulfillment. Dual fulfillment with prophecy, it's a, it's a little bit confusing, so just, just bear with me. Um, it's, it's to say that many prophecies will have two distinct events that they are referring to. This is, and it's, it's a very fine line. Um, it's, it's not that they have two distinct meanings, not two distinct interpretations, but that it would be fulfilled twice. I think I did put on there, there are two distinct interpretations. It's two distinct fulfillments on there, by the way. Um, these are, are common when you look at the first and second coming of Jesus. Old Testament prophecies, the, the prophets, Jesus fulfills 
parts of those things perfectly when he came to earth for the New Testament and parts of those things aren't yet fulfilled because they will be with the second coming. So just trust me on this. We'll get to it a little more particularly as we go through um, the rest of Daniel, but, but just wanted to, to touch on that briefly. So there's dual fulfillment, one near fulfillment, one farther away fulfillment. Um, and then there's the, the final thing is just the caution about prophecy. We don't want to force, um, we don't want to force prophecy to fit something. There was a book published in, um, in 1988 called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. This was followed up closely the next year with The Final Shout, Rapture Report 1989, by the same author who was explaining in this other one that the rapture was going to occur in 1989. Um, obviously, we can look back and say neither of those was, was correct. Um, so we can look back historically and say these things the prophecy just right. And we're going to see some of those things. But in the moment, it's not something that's, that's possible. And you can't really look and say, oh, this, remember that figurative language, it's supposed to happen in the year 2000 or in the, those are, those, um, it's just not possible. And so we want to keep that in mind as we look at prophecy. Now the good news about the prophecy in Daniel is that we have the benefit of 2,500 years of history that we can look back on that was actually Daniel's future. And so, so we've got a little bit of, um, a, a little bit of extra there that we can, um, we can interpret quite a bit of what Daniel said, and we can walk away with a lot of encouragement based on what Daniel wrote. So, Daniel chapter 7 has been called the most important chapter in the book of Daniel. Uh, David Jeremiah says this is about pure future prophecy, the record of God's incredible and unchanging plan for the nations. Did you catch that? Incredible and unchanging plans. God's prophecy is supposed to be something that brings us great encouragement, not fear. So Daniel chapter 7 is by far the most comprehensive and detailed prophecy of future events that's found in the Old Testament. So the key as we look in at these wild and crazy visions with this odd imagery is to remember that there is a reality behind the symbolism and behind this figurative language. And we can find it with a little bit of time and effort. Now, there is a lot in this chapter. And so this chapter, Daniel chapter 7, does connect some with Daniel chapter 8. So there are some things that we're going to for time constraint purposes, we're going to look at more deeply in chapter 8 and sort of flash back to chapter 7 a little bit. 
we're going to touch on them, but, but just know there's, just bear with me. We won't meet next week because of, of spring break at Mount Calvary, but in two weeks we'll come back to it. So just, just trust me. Um, but I do know that even after we finish, there will be, um, will be questions and that's okay. Ask, ask me. And if I don't know, which I probably don't, I can look it up or I can ask somebody who does know. Um, so, so let me know, email me, find me at church, call me. This chapter really is the key to the entire prophecy. So I want you to be comfortable with it. So I want you to ask the questions and, and we, will, we will definitely find an answer. So Daniel 7 starts a new section of the book. We've moved from basically what is the story of the prophet the story of Daniel into the message of that prophet, the, the visions that Daniel had. And so if you think back on those first six chapters of Daniel, what would you say is the overarching idea or theme of all six chapters? So far, what have we, what have we learned about, what have we learned about Daniel? What have we seen about Daniel? An example of how to live in exile. Yeah. We see Daniel was faithful and obedient to God. And this gives us a very good reason to listen to what Daniel has to say next, right? I mean, we've talked over and over again about his reputation preceding him and that that reputation gives him opportunities to speak into the lives of pagan kings. Should give him the right to speak into our lives as well. But then we've also seen something about God over those six chapters. And what is it that we've seen about God? Faithful. Faithful. What else? Sovereign. Sovereign. Anything else? He, he, sees us. he sees us. Yeah. All these things are things that God is, is doing, that, that he was then, he still is today. And as we're going to see in these prophecies, how he is going to stay that way in the future. From, from beginning to end, this narrative has given us the constant reminder of God being in complete control of everything. He took care of the food that Daniel ate. He took care of the fiery furnace. He took care of the sanity of a non-believing king the mouths of lions, and even the rise and fall of nations. So as we change gears and we begin to look at these coming prophecies, we are going to see these same two big ideas. We are going to see that Daniel is still faithful and that God is still in control. So now that we are this far into our time, we're going to actually open our Bibles. <laughs> So I gave somebody Daniel 7, 1 through 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. 
Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So there's a lot in that passage, right? But we are going to, to do the, the, those concepts of the inductive Bible study. We're going to break it down one small piece at a time, and we're just going to observe the text. So we'll start with the easy question. When did this chapter take place? The first year of Belshazzar. Wait. Belshazzar, he was one of those kings of Babylon. But last week we were in Persia, right? The goal of the book of Daniel is not chronological order. It was divided in a specific order for a reason. And so, yes, we go back in time just a little bit. Um, on your timeline on page 33, we see um, what was the first year of Belshazzar. 553 BC. So I gave out that, that other handout to add to your notebooks last week. You, yours will have a, a map on the back side of it. Um, I did notice on mine at least, and I don't know whether it's that I've just printed out the wrong one and ended up fixing it on yours or not, but there where I have Daniel 7, it says 550 and it's supposed to say 553 and the one below it should be 550, by the way. Um, it's a new one. If you weren't here last week, I say if you weren't here last week, it is um, it is on the table. So we will look more at the map next time. But but this is the order of the books chronologically, and you'll see it goes one, two, three, four, seven, eight, five, nine, six, ten through twelve, right? If we look at the order of the books, the one or the other, the years or the chapters has to be out of order. So um, this should help a little bit to just sort of clarify where we are in that whole process. Um, and by the way, we're gonna we're gonna come back to this little part of the timeline down here that I just discovered 
after Elizabeth's history lesson, so that's why you didn't get it until after that. Although it would have been very handy before that, but um, anyway. So we'll come back to that, so you may want to sort of remember where you put that page in your book. Um, so we have the win. So what happens? Daniel has a dream. So we've got the who, right? There was Daniel, and we've got the what. He has a, a, a vision of the night, right? That's what they call it in um, chapter 2. So, And then what did Daniel do with that vision? It says, I saw my vision in the night. Oh, no, it says he... Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote them down. We get to benefit from this vision that God revealed to Daniel because Daniel took the time to write it down. So now, and again, I, mine is not on the correct chart, but... You guys have a chart kind of like this somewhere. It doesn't look exactly like this. Yours doesn't have all this extra stuff on it, but it's on page 30. I did write down the page number in your handouts. But yours looks different than mine looks. So, And you're going to have some stuff already filled in on it, and that's okay. That's what we want. So this may be useful to you as we're sort of talking through. So feel free to use it. If you aren't that kind of visual person like I am, don't feel like you have to. Don't force yourself to use the chart. It's just there to, to be of assistance. Um, but what was the first thing? So we're just going to break apart this vision down into little bite-sized chunks. And so what was the first thing there in, in verse 2 that Daniel saw? The four winds of heaven. And what were those four winds doing? Stirring up the great sea. So the four winds of heaven, being of heaven, tells us that this whole vision and what is to come is from whom? From God. Right? You just interpreted Art of prophecy. <laughs> great job. Now the great sea, um, different people say different things about that. Some say it was just literally the, the Mediterranean Sea was called the great sea. Um, that's what they called it elsewhere in the Old Testament. Uh, but it's, it's also going to be symbolic in some ways because this is prophecy. This is figurative language. And so it's, it's symbolic of the, the chaos and the conflict among the nations. And we'll see that a little more um, later as well. But then we see these, these wind, the winds of heaven. They're stirring up the great sea. You've seen rough, rough seas before, right? You've, you've seen that, at least in pictures, right? If you haven't. Um, but before. Before we, so, so then we get into these, these four beasts. Before we do that, I'm going to ask you all, I know this seems really childish, but 
it's not because I've, I have also taught children in the past. It's really a good exercise. So, but I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes and I'm going to slowly reread verses three through seven. And I want you to keep your cl eyes closed even when I pause. I want you to take a, just a moment, take that moment that I pause to picture what Daniel might have seen. And I'll tell you when you can open your eyes again. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had e eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. Okay, open your eyes. Now I'm going to, I'm, I'm hoping that in that moment you were able to just sort of get a little bit of a picture of what Daniel might have been seeing, because I'm going to put some images on the screen just to sort of get your mind flowing, um, but but I want you to, to be thinking as you now see a, a one particular artist's uh, interpretation of what it is, that, that you're imagining the sound it might be making. Remember, this was a, a vision he would have, uh, when you have a dream, you, you can hear things, you can smell things sometimes. So just think about all of those things as, as we're talking about this. Um, so I just chose pictures that would give us a jumping off point in case you, you know, didn't remember what a lion might look like or something. But, yeah. So how did Daniel describe the first beast? Like a lion with eagle's wings. And then what happened to that beast? Wings were plucked off, and then what? Stood up, and what happened to his mind? Given a mind like a man. And so those, those are things that you can just sort of jot down in your chart there if you want to. Either one. My, this one, the reason I did yours that way was because I found myself trying to mark things and so... I, yeah. However, whichever side you want to use is fine. Yours is different than mine because 
I fixed yours after I realized that mine was inadequate. Now we're going to look at the interpretations of these beasts in a little bit, so we'll come back to these. Um, but just, just do make notes on your chart so that as you're thinking through these things, you can sort of get that idea of, of what was happening in this vision. we get to a second beast and what did the um, how did Daniel describe the second beast like a bear and what was the bear doing raised up on one side had three ribs in its mouth and what was it told to do devour much flesh so again, make some of these notes in your chart about what, um, what is going on. And then how did Daniel describe the third beast? Like a leopard. Like a leopard. With four wings. Four heads. And then what was given to it? It was given dominion. These beasts, these first three are ones that your picture in your mental picture that you imagined when you closed your eyes was probably somewhat similar to the picture that I showed you on, on the screen. Most of the ones on, on the internet were pretty similar to each other. <coughs> this fourth beast he was much harder to describe. The variety of artwork showing this fourth beast was massive. There were lots of differences. So this, this fourth beast, when I show you a, a picture of this fourth beast, visualize whatever you were, were visualizing. He's not exactly what I visualized for myself either, but my ability with 
getting my vision onto paper is is lacking. And so I went with just picking from the internet. Um, so we get to this fourth beast described in verse 7. And it doesn't tell us that he was like a lion or a bear or a leopard. What does it say? Terrifying and dreadful. Um, K. Arthur just calls him the DT beast, the dreadful and terrifying beast. So he was dreadful and terrifying. He was exceedingly strong. He devoured and broke into pieces what remained, but he had ten horns. This, this fourth beast, this terrifying beast, this dreadful beast was vicious, right? That's the picture that we do know, even though we don't know exactly um, what he looked like. You can just imagine, you, you think about just the, you know, the spit coming out of his mouth as he's like screeching and growling and and all those things right so you can you can just just imagine not just the picture but the sounds too so those are the beasts but then there was something else about this fourth beast that's described so so what what is it about these the, the horns of this beast that are described in verse 8. So the, the, you had the ten horns on the beast, and then this little one came up, and what did that little one do? It, it knocked out three of them, and then it had eyes, and then it had what? And a mouth. And he spoke. This one was the more humorous picture that I found of these horns. But, but that's the thing. This little horn rises up, plucks out three horns, and replaces them. But he has eyes like a man, and he's a mouth speaking great things. So you talk about a strange sight on the head of this terrible, or terrifying and dreadful beast but the fact that the fact that Daniel noticed I mean I wouldn't be able to get past the teeth of a dreadful and terrifying beast to notice that there were ten horns and to be able to watch that he plucked out three of them by the roots I mean that was some um, I'm glad it was Daniel having the vision and not me <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. That, that's why we're doing this in the morning. You got plenty of time to fill your brains with other things. So we're going to come back to these parts of the vision um, in just a little bit, but, but we're going to sort of go through a scene change here. Um, several several uh, commentators referred to this as kind of like 
imagine you're watching a movie and this is sort of what you're seeing. So now we're getting to a, to a act two, right? Uh, so I gave somebody Daniel 7, 9 through 14. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flame. His, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then, because of the sound of the great word that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of, like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So now we see a different part of the vision. There's like three different scenes almost, and each scene seems more awesome and more glorious than the previous one. So what does Daniel describe in verses 9 and 10? Who's sitting on the throne? The Ancient of Days. And how does he describe the Ancient of Days? Clothing white as snow. Hair like pure wool. A fiery throne. With wheels. Yeah, and then there was the stream of fire, and how many were serving him? A whole bunch. Yeah. And then, right, and then, and then that there was, he was, there was judgment with the, the books and, and things. This, you know, we've all heard the, the title, Ancient of Days for God. This is the only place in the Bible, Daniel 7 is the only place where God is referred to as the Ancient of Days. Um, but we have to keep in mind, God the Father is not a human. So we have to remember that what Daniel is seeing, he's trying to put into human terms. So while remembering we're, we're dealing with, with figurative language, um, but we also have, you know, the rest of Scripture to lean on as we go. And so, so we're going to just sort of break down the Ancient of Days. What do you think the white clothing, clothing white as snow, would represent? Purity. Purity and holiness. Those, those are the things that we're, we're seeing. But, but we see that, we see that that white as snow terminology used in other passages of scripture referring to purity. So we know this one 
It refers to purity. Um, what about the white hair? When you see someone with white hair, what do you think of? Older, wiser, distinguished. Yeah, so for when we put this in the context of, of God, older would be more um, eternal, eternality, so that eternal concept of being eternal, but, but also the concept with the wisdom um, would, would also be. Yeah, I I was. The, there was that um, that sheep years and years ago, that was um, he was lost for several years, and so he had several years worth of of wool. And when you looked at him, it wasn't just that it was this massive sheep covered in this massive coat of wool. There were brambles and dirt and mud and and just but i remember reading that they couldn't they they sheared the sheep but they couldn't actually use the wool that it had been so damaged from those years that they couldn't even use the wool that the sheep had produced um you'll have to you'll have to look that up on your own i didn't think of that until just now so you know but but then there's a lot of fire described here so when we think about fire, what do we think about when it relates to, to the Bible and to God? Purification. Refining. Yeah, that's the, the, the concept of judgment. Uh, that, that stream of fire could indicate the wrath of his judgment. And I believe I gave somebody Psalm 97.3. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. Yeah, so so that stream of fire is is that is that judgment as well, the the wrath of that judgment, uh, that consuming fire. But then there's something that stood out to me and apparently to Elizabeth as well. His throne has wheels on it. <laughs> Not something you always think about, right? Now they're fiery wheels, but but what? Why do we put wheels on something? Move to move it easy. I was thinking about it was it's trash pickup day on our street today, and we have one of those little cart things that has the wheels on the back of the trash can, so we can put it easily. Right? Wheels provide mobility. So these fiery wheels allow the, the Ancient of Days to pronounce his judgment anywhere. It just means he has no spatial limitations. So those wheels on his throne are indicating his omnipresence, his presence everywhere. And then there were thousands upon thousands, I, I, I can't remember the exact number and my Bible closed over here, but thousands upon thousands that were serving him. These are, are 
well, let's read um, Revelation 5, 11 through 12. Did I give that one to somebody? You have that one? There were several Revelation ones, so... numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So in, in Revelation 5, Again, using scripture to interpret scripture, we see angels, thousands upon thousands of angels surrounding the throne of God. And that's what was happening here as well. These, these thousands that were serving him were angels. But then, um, then we change the scene again. And we go back to focusing on the horn and, and these beasts. And so what, what happens, what does Daniel describe in verses 11 through 12? The horn was speaking. The horn was speaking. He comes back. The beast was killed. Not just killed, but what happened to him? Destroyed by fire, right? And then what? What happened to the other four beasts? They were, they were stripped of their authority. Their dominion was taken away, but they survived for a time. Right? And, and what we're going to see is, is those empires that these, these nations of the, that the beasts are, they survived within the empire that had overtaken them that they were just mere shadows of themselves. That's the concept um, that we're looking at here. Um, I gave somebody Revelation 19, 19 through 21. Then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast was taken prisoner, and along with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs in its presence. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image with these signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds ate their fill of their flesh. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the fourth beast was turned over to the fire, just like in Revelation. So we're going to come back to the other beasts. But first, we're going to look at verses 13 and 14. What, was, what is it that Daniel describes there? Who comes then? Like a son of man, 
came to the Ancient of Days. He was given dominion. Which one? The Son of Man? Yeah. The, when you get, I, I wasn't asking to be like rude. I was asking because these pronouns, it's important to, to note which pronoun goes with which person. So, so yeah, the Son of Man is given uh, dominion and glory and a kingdom. And what about that kingdom? Everlasting, cannot be destroyed, right? So this one, the, the Son of Man comes down from the clouds, what does that mean? It's coming from the clouds. It is from God, right? From heaven. And so who is the Son of Man? Jesus. This is, this is, you want the big fancy word? Christophany. Christophany, this is an Old Testament pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. This was not a mere angel. This was God the Son himself. And Jesus tells us it's him. This was, this was Jesus' favorite self-designated title. Uh, it's used 81 times in the four Gospels. And so I gave somebody Matthew 24, 29 through 31. I thought I did. So you see, there's just one example of Jesus as the Son of Man. So we know very clearly, using Scripture to interpret Scripture, that this Son of Man in Daniel 7 is Jesus, uh, and, that, and th that Jesus is the one who is given this everlasting, undestroyable kingdom. So that finishes our vision. Um, Dr. Aiken says, a vision that began like a nightmare with monsters coming out of the sea ends happily and hopefully with a man coming out of heaven whom God crowned sovereign over the world. So we've finished the vision, but it doesn't finish the chapter. So um, Daniel 7, 15 through 28. Of iron and balls of bronze, 
and its devoured and broken pieces and drank what was left of its feet. And about the tenth horn that were on its head and the other horn that came out, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth and that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints that prevailed over them, until the ancient of days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, it shall be the fourth kingdom on earth. It shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall rise, and another shall arise from them, who shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings, who shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the laws. And they shall be given into his hand for times, times, and a half a time. By the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So what was Daniel's response to this vision? He was scared. He was, he was anxious and alarmed and distressed. Um, Dr. Aiken says, sometimes even a vision of the greatness and glory of God is still not enough to overcome our anxieties, concerns, and troubled hearts. Daniel had seen this awesome vision, and yet he was still distressed. And, it, and he doesn't know all the details but he knows that it means chaos and violence and calamity and craziness. So he approached one that was standing there. He was standing near the throne. So who did he approach? Not God. Who was standing around serving the angels? Yeah, so he would have approached the angel. Um, and the angel is the one that, that gave him this interpretation. Wouldn't it have been nice if the angel just said, well, on this date, such and such is going to happen, and on this date, this is going to happen? I mean, but we have the benefit of, of history to help us. And my paper fell behind me, but, but here we're going to look back at, at our thing. We're going we're gonna to look at, and this time we're going to compare some of those things on our charts to that statue dream from Nebuchadnezzar. So that's why the, the chart will be a little bit, um, little bit more useful. So we walk through, we observe the text, we compare it to Daniel 2, and we see that these four beasts represent four kingdoms, one coming after another. So the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, how many, how many nations were represented? Four, right? And how many beasts were there? Four. But we see differences as well. So there are similarities, but, but we see differences. Why do you think King Nebuchadnezzar saw a statue and Daniel saw the beasts? 
So Nebuchadnezzar, his dream was from a man's perspective, spe specifically from a king's perspective, right? And remember King Nebuchadnezzar, he was impressed by important and shiny things, <laughs> right? The statue would have been impressive and important. But Daniel, Daniel was seeing things through God's eyes. So Daniel saw beasts that were ruthless in attacking and devouring one another. So, so we've got this same vision from man's perspective and from God's perspective. Kind of makes it a, 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 a just unique situation for us to be able to look at. So that first beast comes. It's that winged lion. These say the same things as it did on those first slides. So if you missed something, go for it. But um, that first beast comes, it's the winged lion. And so like the head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, this represents what? Babylon. Babylon. <laughs> Look on your chart. Um, so, so it represents Babylon. And I'm pretty sure that I wrote down, but I may have just written it down on my own, that, that Elizabeth talked about, about um, the lion of Babylon. This, the, the Babylon actually rep represented itself with a winged lion at this point in time. And so you can kind of see this is from that Ishtar gate, that big main gate. You see the lion, but you see those, those feathers almost there at his shoulders. Those are wings. This gate existed in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, so it would have still been there in the time of Belshazzar. Daniel would have been very familiar with this gate. Uh, this second one, well, I'm going to show you both at the same time. This is the same statue. Um, one, the one in the middle there was a picture taken in 1909, so it's been about 30 years. And you can see so a little more detail, but the picture's grainy because it was taken in 1909 versus the uh, one that is smoothed out a little bit more and, and damaged by some weather. But this statue has been found to have been built by King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, not by him, but he commanded for it to be created. Uh, it's a lion. You can see that sort of um, divot almost there in the middle of his back. Possibly it had wings at one point in the middle of its back there. Uh, if they existed, they were lost to time. But, but um, th this, this lion, and you'll see this one, the lion is actually pouncing on a man. If you, if you can look and see that closely. Um, and so this, the, the uh, as well, if you read in Ezekiel 17, in Jeremiah, throughout Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel refers to Babylon as an eagle. Jeremiah refers to Babylon as a lion. There was no doubt in Daniel's mind that this first beast was Babylon. And remember, this is, this is in 
the reign of King Belshazzar, and so this dream from Nebuchadnezzar in, in Daniel chapter 2 has already happened. So he has that luxury as well uh, um, in, in thinking through these things. But then the lion has its wings plucked off and then being lifted up to stand like a man. And when you think about this, you think about an event from King Nebuchadnezzar's life that we know about. Having your wings plucked off would humble you, right? And so what's something that happened to King Nebuchadnezzar to have him be humbled? He came like a beast and was, was out in the fields, right? So, so he, um, his mind was made like a beast, so that would have, would have humbled him. But then he was made to stand back up from a beast, to stand back up like a man, just like this lion was. And so that's, that's just even more of the picture of this lion representing Babylon. That second beast... The second beast comes, comes like a bear, right? Again, same stuff that was on, on there the first time. What was the second part of the statue? Physically, it was the chest and the arms. What did it represent? What did we say it represented? The Medo-Persian Empire. The, the Medes and the Persians, and so there were those two arms of the statue, two distinct empires that, that combined together into one. But the bear raised up on one side shows us that one side of that, of that pair was stronger than the other, and that was the Persians. Uh, we're going to get more into the Medo-Persian Empire in chapter 8, uh, so we won't go too much into into great detail we'll come back to to the image of the bear then as well but those three ribs in its mouth it's pretty much agreed upon that these are three different empires that the Medo-Persian Empire conquered and, and swallowed up um, that would have been Lydia in 546 BC Babylon in 539 and Egypt in 525 but even if it's not those three specific ones you see a a bear with bones in his mouth, rib bones in his mouth, you're going to see this insatiable nature of the bear to, to conquer, to destroy, to devour things. Um, and, and then the bear is told, arise and devour much flesh. Right? We see how much bigger, with those maps, how much bigger the, the Babylonian Empire, or the Persian Empire was than the Babylonian Empire. They had destroyed much, or devoured much flesh. And then we see the, the third beast. The third beast, like the leopard with the four wings and the, and the four heads, leopards are swift and agile. And Elizabeth mentioned in our history lesson that Alexander the Great conquered, conquered territories for Greece in a very swift way, it's now known as the Blitzkrieg, uh, is the method that 
that he used. It was just, he would come in and he would come in fast and no rest. And that's what he had trained his armies for. And that was, that was what, um, uh, that was what his, his method was for, for growing so much larger. Um, this is, this is the bronze belly and the thighs from Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And the, this is the part that, that I wrote down on my chart. Again, not this one. Mine's on the floor behind me. But um, that, that it says that uh, in, in Daniel 2.39, this is the part that it says will rule over the earth. Just like Daniel 7.6 says dominion was given to this third beast. And then what happened to the empire of Greece after the early death of Alexander the Great? Split up into how many? Four different leaders took over the empire of Greece. So one empire, one leopard, four leaders, four kings, four heads. We'll get into more about Greece next week as well. Um, but these are just the keys of, of uh, uh, this particular beast. And then we get to that fourth beast and the fourth nation. What do you remember about the fourth part of the statue? Iron. Iron. Partly brittle, partly strong. The the ten, ten toes and then the ten horns. So this one's this one's thought to represent the Roman Empire. The Romans were strong and enduring, uh, as just as iron was. They were as uncompromising as a beast on a rampage. David Jeremiah says it was Rome that crucified Peter and beheaded Paul. It was Rome that banished John to the island of Patmos and Rome that burned Christians and butchered men, women, and children. It was Rome that crucified our Lord. And so, so Rome is this dreadful or terrifying and dreadful fourth beast. Um, then we get to those horns and we said there were 10 horns at the start and how many toes in Daniel 2 on the statue? 10. Kind of neat how that works, isn't it? But Rome never broke into 10 parts, right? So how does that work? How do we have 10 horns on this beast? This is that, that concept of dual fulfillment where we have the near interpretation and the far interpretation. This is, this is the, the, um, where Daniel is talking about the, the first coming portion with Rome and the second coming with these ten horns. Um, this is, the, they seem to, these prophecies seem to teach us what happens at the second coming at the same time as the first coming, but we know that they are two separate things. So this is sort of the gap in time before those ten kingdoms come to power. Now, there have been numerous different ideas that, well, here are the ten kingdoms that they are. And 
but we don't have the benefit of looking back yet to know if those are actually the case or not. Um, so what we know is that at some point in time, some ten-nation confederation will be some extension of the Roman Empire and is going to give us the Antichrist, the, that little horn. And that, that little horn, uh, the Revelation calls it the Antichrist. This is the counterfeit Christ, but it's also one who is an enemy of Christ and of Christians. And so the little horn plucking out those three others shows that this kingdom of the Antichrist overcomes three other rulers in order to do what he wants to do. The eyes on that horn show remarkable skill and knowledge in planning. The mouth shows that he will be skilled in using words to promote himself and to have people follow him. But it's also that he will directly blasphemy God. Um, and then we, we get to that funny time phrase there in verse 25, the end of verse 25, and it, the ESV says, they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time. Now this terminology, just so you know, seems really strange to us, but this is one of those times when, when we would put the historical context into it. Um, time is one year, times is two years, and half a time is six months. And so, so one year plus two years plus six months, three and a half years. If you're reading in Revelation, it lines up with the 42 months. Um, and so he's given this, this um, uh, power and he's opposing the saints or opposing Christians for a period of three and a half years. And though it's, we have to remember it's prophecy, and so this three and a half years could still be figurative language. Again, we haven't experienced it yet, so we haven't been able to look back with that to see. Um, but before we finish with the good news. <laughs> I do want to caution you about trying to guess who the Antichrist is or trying to, to figure out um, when the end is coming. First uh, Thessalonians 5, I think it's verse 2, but I may be wrong on that, but it's in First Thessalonians 5, says that, that the, the return will be like, come like a thief in the night, right? And, and but that the bridesmaids the parable of the bridesmaids in Matthew 25 is is the reminder that we should be on the lookout we should always be ready even though we don't know when it's coming um, David Jeremiah this is a book called the handwriting on the wall deals a lot with the prophecies in in Daniel um, he he kind of summed it up nicely. He says, one of the most popular indoor sports of theologians is to try to identify the Antichrist, spoken of by Daniel and by the Apostle John. I've had people take me out to lunch and try to guide me through a study in gematria, which is a method of interpreting the scripture by equating a person's name with numbers. Since the Antichrist is given the number 666 in Revelation 16:18. There is a formula by which some try to equate the numbers to letters and find out who the person is. Here are the rules you have to follow if you want to make the formula work. 
First, if the proper name doesn't work, add a title. <laughs> Second, if it doesn't work in English, try Hebrew, Greek, or Latin. Third, if none of those work, cheat on the spelling. That way you can make anybody the Antichrist. But the key, he says, he goes on to say, I don't know who the Antichrist is, but I do know what he is. And so the key for us to remember is that the Antichrist is coming, that we need to be aware of, of people who are going to speak well, are going to be great leaders, but are going to be terrible for Christians. Um, but then we have to remember that's not the end. The Antichrist is not the end. Because verses 26 and 27 tell us that the Antichrist will be judged, his dominion will be taken away, and he will be destroyed. It is at that point that the everlasting kingdom of the Most High God rules. God ultimately gives the kingdom over to the Son of Man, to Jesus, and victory comes for every believer. This is the encouragement that we should walk away with. This is the final word. This is that stone in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Jesus Christ comes and takes over the earthly kingdom and has eternal domain. And then Philippians 2, 9 through 11 comes true. And I don't know who I gave that to. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's the good news. That's the encouragement that we need to walk away from this dreadful and terrifying beast, from this horn that looks crazy ridiculous, that's the good news. Oh, sorry, I had it so that we could put it up on the screen too, sorry. That, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 